chinesisches Tor. Der deutsche Spargelkult müsse enden. Germany's beleaguered defense minister has temporarily dropped his PhD Deutschland ist eine Perle der deutschen Industrie. Und ich glaube, das kann man nicht. Ich weiß, wie viel Liebe dahinter steht. Wenn Glühweinstände aufgebaut werden, wenn Wachen... Spargelweltmeister ist China, denn die bauen 60 Mal mehr... Hey, this is Ted. Hi, it's Michelle. Welcome back to Spaßbremse. We've got another great episode for you today. We are discussing housing policy here in Berlin. We bring in an expert on the topic, Thomas McGath, a housing activist from a really exciting referendum initiative that's on the ballot in just 15 days as of recording. We wanted to kind of zoom in on this local political initiative because it ties into last week's big picture episode. Right, yeah, so last week, We talked about these macro-level economic ideas and policies with the, the Schuldenbremse and Germany's fiscal politics in general. And obviously all of that has huge day-to-day -day implications as we discussed on that episode, but in many ways it feels kind of distant from your ordinary life. So today we want to talk about something that most people think about every single day, your apartment and your rent. And this is a huge issue in so many cities and towns, you know, across Europe and the world, you know, really everywhere there's rental pressures. It's a, it's a huge, huge issue. But the Berlin housing market specifically has gotten a lot of international attention lately, in particular due to this upcoming campaign to socialize the apartments from corporate landlords. You know, you've seen articles in the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, Bloomberg, you know, of course, a lot of German papers as well. And so... This initiative has gotten a ton of attention and it's really at the forefront of some of this pushback against rising rents all throughout the world. Exactly. The referendum campaign is called Deutsche Wohnen und Co. Enteignen. The initiative is proposing the expropriation of Berlin's giant corporate landlords. Deutsche Wohnen and Co. refers to the companies being targeted, and the word Enteignung basically means bringing into public ownership. The campaign has been a sort of culmination of various citizens' initiatives over really decades here in Berlin that have fought for affordable housing and against gentrification. Yeah, it's a, it's a super interesting topic since Berlin is in many ways, as Michelle said, at the, the forefront of this pushback against rental increases and the treatment of housing as a financial asset rather than, you know, a, a human right or something everyone is entitled to. One thing for me that I found particularly interesting living in Berlin these past several years is even just this term of like rental politics or Wohnungspolitik, like Even thinking about that as a concept is a really interesting one because it didn't honestly really occur to me as a thing that could exist as a concept when I lived in the U.S. Like rents there just seem, rents are rents, right? They're decided by the market. You just have to pay the going rate if you want to live in a certain area. There's no real politics behind it is how you feel. And now, of course, Rent and housing is always a political issue, but in so many places, that's really not made explicit. People are so used to living at the whim of landlords and property investors that they don't really feel like they can push back against rents, which are often rising way faster than incomes. 
And so here, you know, it, it's a bit different and it, it's quite interesting to see this campaign because Berliners, to their credit, realize that rent is the site of political contestation and are willing to contest it. And, you know, there, there's groups, there's groups and movements in, in every city to push back against rising rents, but the institutionalization and the size of the movements here are really something special in a lot of ways. And yeah, so they've been making this issue really explicit and, and really a, a site of political struggle for a long time with these demonstrations, activist groups, legal organizations to fight exploitative landlords. And Deutsche Wohnen und Kohn-Eignen, as Michelle said, is really the culmination of a lot of that work. And so before we get to this interview where Michelle interviews Thomas, it's important to talk a bit about the roots of this political moment in Berlin. First of all, it's important to know that there were a ton of sell-offs of previously public-owned housing in the early 2000s. This resulted in a huge decline in social housing. You know, at the time there was a lot of pressure to reduce debt for states and cities. So an easy way to do that is just do a one-off sale of public housing. They say, okay, we're selling all of this to like a New York-based hedge fund or private equity company. And then, okay, our books are, our books are balanced. We don't have any more debt. But then all of this housing that used to be in state ownership is now private and those rents can start to rise again. So it, it cleans up the books of the municipalities, but it kind of created the seeds of a long-term problem, which we're seeing now. And those people aren't on public payroll anymore, right? Yeah. Like the yeah. management of the housing stock yeah, then absolutely. falls yeah. to the private corporations as well. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, these the rents rise and now you have a huge amount of the housing stock in Germany is owned by, you know, a handful of large firms. And Germany is pretty unique in this way, actually. And I found this really interesting to research, right? Because we kind of think of Germany as like a laggard behind the US and UK when it comes to this like rise of neoliberalism, the growth of financialization, these sort of grim economic trends that are that are plaguing other countries. But in terms of treating housing as just a pure asset to extract profits from, it's actually, in many ways, like a model for capitalists around the world. You know, this institutional investors buying these flats in huge quantities and just charging as much as they can is, is a bit different than it is in many other places. And you're actually seeing that start more and more in the U.S. now. You've probably seen these news stories where like, like BlackRock is buying entire neighborhoods in the U.S. and doing this. But this, in a lot of ways, started in Germany in the early 2000s with these fire sales of public assets. So in Germany, like in a lot of other countries, housing wealth is a huge component of overall wealth. The Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung, the political foundation of the left party here, had a report earlier this year called Who Owns the City? They found that, quote, in 2018, out of Germany's 15.9 trillion euro wealth and in total wealth and assets, 50% consisted of residential buildings and the associated land, and 28.5% consisted of commercial real estate, including land. So that's over three quarters of the wealth of the entire country in real estate. Like insane proportion just in buildings and land. And in Berlin specifically, what we're talking about in the interview, prices have been a bit lower than other cities in Germany, but rising at a much faster rate. Again, from the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung, they point out that Berlin, of any city in Germany, had the quickest rise in purchase prices over the past decade at 177%. Rents doubled between 2005 and 2019, with further increases over the last two years. 
And so, you know, the, the point of this episode is to talk about solutions to this problem, because a lot of people across the political spectrum will say, oh, yeah, these rising rents are a problem. And, you know, maybe they want actually have an earnest effort to solve that to different extents. But people all across the spectrum say we need to do something about this. And the point of this interview is to address one way to do that. But often you'll hear that there's like this other or better way. And that's build, 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 bowen, bowen, bowen. You'll hear a lot. And this is part of the solution, as Tom rightly gets into in the interview, you know, like, we're not in this sort of like hyper anti Yimby camp that's like opposed to new building. We think like building is important, but it's not a solution to the entire problem. Like you need other solutions as well. The idea that if you just increase the supply, prices will magically go down or stabilize is very intuitive. If you have a kind of econ 101 brain, you know, you can see the little graph, the supply goes up, the price goes down, right? Like it makes sense. But that's not how a housing market works in a globalized financial system. Like this isn't a closed system. There's virtually unlimited capital flowing from the rest of Germany and from abroad into the Berlin housing market, which means there's no feasible amount of building that's going to keep rents at an affordable level given these huge pools of capital flowing in. And I really mean like these are outstanding, really remarkable levels of money coming into the city for investments and when I say investments, for the most part, this isn't investment into new building. It's investment just into buying up existing housing stock, jacking up the rents. For example, between 2007 and 2020, over 40 billion euros were invested in real estate in this city. That's one third more than London and about three times that of Paris. Of course, both of these are much wealthier cities than Berlin, and London is about three times the size. And Berlin still beats both of them. Like, really, really remarkable how much of an exception Berlin is in this case. In many ways, it's indicative of the problem, but it's like at the forefront of these massively rising rents and this huge international investment. So like given all of these dynamics that have been going on, Michelle, could you take us through a couple of the steps that have taken place before this referendum of political groups and the government trying to fight these rent increases. Yeah, exactly. The major measure that was taken by the Berlin government was a now discarded policy called the rent cap. The red-red-green governing coalition in Berlin passed a law in January 2020 setting a maximum legal rent for a given apartment based on a calculation that factored in the year of construction and renovation work. Because of the rent cap, landlords were forced to lower rents until the German Supreme Court declared the law unconstitutional due to a technicality. The news that the rent cap got struck down in March of this year, I just forgot whether it was 2021 or 2022. The news it's been that. A long lockdown. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was 2021. That was this year. <laughs> that was this March when the rent cap got struck down. And it, it really couldn't have come at a better time, actually, for this expropriation referendum that we're talking about on this episode, because they were collecting signatures at the time to get their initiative on the ballot. And they ended up succeeding in part because people were so upset about the uh, rent cap getting struck down. I think it really gave them kind of a boost in the middle of their signature collecting phase. Yeah, absolutely. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to say they wouldn't have hit the goal otherwise, but it definitely in, like injected a ton of life into it and like, and put 
rental politics back at the forefront of people's minds. And so, yeah, I mean, it's it's unfortunate that this got struck down by the court, but in a way it could have given a boost to this campaign that, that we'll be discussing further. And so just before we get to that interview, we should just clarify like a, a few kind of odd specific quirks about Berlin housing, because in many ways it's a bit different than what you might have experienced if you haven't lived in Berlin or in Germany. Yeah, we, we kind of cover this, but just to emphasize it, the vast majority of people in Berlin rent their apartment. This is, of course, the norm in a lot of major cities, but in Berlin it's particularly pronounced. Over 85% of people here rent compared to 68% in New York or 53% in London. Yeah, and so in the housing discourse in Berlin, a lot of it's about people not wanting to get kicked out of their flats, wanting these like long-term contracts, which again may sound strange if you're based more in the Anglophone world where, you know, you get these like 12-month leases, they can jack up the rents, they can kick you out, like there's no stability. People generally here live in their flats for a much longer period of time, there's better renter protections and so on. It's also very difficult to find a flat. It's a super arduous process. You know, if you've thought about moving to Berlin, you've probably seen these like photos or stories about like 200, 300 people at a single viewing. And it's like, it's very difficult. So people don't want to move around because it's like just a huge hassle. Also, it's very like annoying to move into a flat in Berlin because for example, you have to build your own kitchen. Like it doesn't come with cabinets or anything like that. Like this sounds very specific and random, but like if you had to build a kitchen which I had to do when I moved into a flat here. Like, you have to screw together, put in the sink, like, cut everything out, wire the oven, all this shit. You have to do all of that when you move into a flat in Berlin or pay someone else to do it. And so, like, that's a huge, huge cost every time you move. So you really don't want to move frequently here. It's not feasible the way it is in other cities. And so, you know, comparing again to London or New York, yet another reason why it's very, very important for people here to have stability, because it's a huge financial and time investment if you need to move. And so, yeah, speaking again of those cities, because I think it's helpful to have a reference point to other major global cities, you actually see in the rhetoric here and in the messaging of the housing campaigns, they specifically cite cities like Paris, London, or New York as examples to avoid. You know, they, they see what's happened to these cities and they say, we don't want to become like that. Because, even given the rises, rental costs here as a percentage of income are quite a bit lower than the cities, Paris, London, New York, etc. And so people want to keep it that way or make them go down and let Berlin stay as one of the few global cities that you can actually live as an ordinary person and not let it go down this road of these other global metropolises. And so a, a big question hanging out there of whether this will happen or whether Berlin will become just another unaffordable playground for rich people really hinges on this campaign. And that's why one of the reasons I find this so fascinating and so important is really like it sounds dramatic, but yeah, like the, the fate of this city as a place that's not just a place only for rich people really hangs on this vote, which they just need 50% to clear it in three weeks, like two weeks from now, actually. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting development. And Michelle and Tom have a great interview for you. So on to that. I am joined today by Thomas McGath, who is a spokesperson from the referendum campaign Deutsche Wohnen und Co. Enteignen. Thomas, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. 
To start off, who are the Deutsche Wohnen and Co? Um, so Deutsche Wohnen and Co is all of the landlords, corporate landlords that have 3,000 apartments or more in Berlin. So originally we had called the campaign Deutsche Wohnen and Eignen. Um, Deutsche Wohnen is the biggest landlord in, in the city with around 110,000 apartments. Um, but we later added the co to include all of the other companies. So put together, all of these companies that have 3,000 apartments or more is around 250,000 apartments in Berlin, which is, uh, I think, around 16% of the entire housing stock in, in the city. Wow, okay, we're talking about a lot of places here. To continue with some terminology, you mentioned Enteignen or Enteignung rather. What does that translate to in English? So it, it translates directly to expropriation, which is not necessarily a well-known term. Um, I think mostly because in the US and at least in the UK as well, there hasn't been this history around expropriation, um, but it, it refers actually directly to nationalization or socialization of either land or means of production or companies, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And in German, Enteignen might have some negative connotations. Yes. Why? <laughs> exactly. That's what I was kind of hinting at earlier. So um, within Germany, uh, when it was separated into West and East Germany, in East Germany, there was a, a large wave of expropriations. Most of them are not compensated. So this is why a lot of people in West Germany see expropriation as kind of a scare word, because a lot of landlords were expropriated, farmers who had large plots of land, and this land was taken and given to the state. Or if you had a house, for example, the state took it and broke it up into several different units and uh, people could rent and live there as well. Okay, and the choice of the campaign to sometimes speak about Vergesellschaftung is an attempt to move away from those negative connotations and say socialization. Well, um, so I think uh, part of our original strategy was actually to use the word expropriation as kind of a door opener to gain attention and it worked. <laughs> so back in 2019, when we first launched the campaign, we had this large uh, rental rights demo uh, in April 2019 um, and there was around 40,000 people on the streets. And that was the starting shot for our campaign, basically. And all of a sudden we were in the news and the press uh, all over Germany, it became a topic, the number one topic, I would say, in, in the country for around a month or so. Uh, even Merkel had to come out and comment on it because it was such a big topic. So I've always seen this as an attempt to say, okay, you know, we have expropriation as a concept, like a, a higher level concept. And within that, within the German legal framework, there is Vergesellschaftung, which refers to socialization or communalization. So it's different in, in the sense that socialization refers to taking a specific sector or a amount of a sector and turning it into common property. So it would like it would be similar to saying, okay, if Berlin was to socialize their energy network, they would take it over and have to give compensation to the company. Okay. I think I understand. <laughs> <laughs> it's a complicated topic. But, it is, yeah. yeah. And I do want to get into some of this legality a bit later on. But I guess we'll start with these 250,000 apartments that you mentioned approximately that would be affected, didn't a majority used to belong to the state of Berlin? Would it be fair to speak of a re-socialization perhaps? Correct. So I don't have the exact number, but a large proportion, um, if not the majority of it used to be public housing. So 
The main kind of start or the impetus for that was the privatization of the GSW, which was a public housing corporation. Berlin had a huge debt crisis in the early 2000s and uh, to actually make money so they could pay off some of their debt, they privatized 65,000 apartments. Um, this was taken over by a uh, amalgamation of, I think it was Goldman Sachs and Cerberus, which <laughs> eventually turned into Deutsche Wohnen. And now today they have around 110,000 apartments. So it's that plus the expiration of social housing. This is, it's a little bit different in comparison to other Anglo-Saxon systems where social housing and public housing are not the same thing, but these other social units were also privatized or their, their rent control uh, expired and they were bought up by these large companies. And what was the governing coalition at the time? Um, in 2004, it was actually the PDS and the SPD. So um, it was both the Social Democrats and the left party. Interesting. We'll get to the party's stances on uh, socialization a bit later, but just a good fact to keep in mind. So like you said, Berlin is facing an affordable housing crisis. As rents increase, wages have not kept pace. How would socialization alleviate this pressure? I mean, can't we just build more houses? Why, why does... Why is this supply and demand approach so unhelpful? Um, for the building question, no. So it's not that simple um, to put it to put it shortly. So when it comes to the socialization of this housing, our approach is that um, if you were to take these apartments away from speculation, to remove them from the capital market where you have millions and billions of euros flowing into the market, basically pumping up all the prices, this would have a dampening effect on prices throughout the entire city. So uh, instead of having these be available as objects of speculation for companies like Deutsche Bona and Venovia to use as pure capital vehicles, um, what they do is they do very cheap renovations and they're able to get around rental law that way. And then, you know, they double or triple the rent essentially because they, they found these loopholes. We actually say, okay, actually what we can do now is take all these these units turn it into a public good um, and keep the rent low so that it's always available. Also at the same time, by having this big new nonprofit player in the market, we would be able to build more housing. We would be able to um, stop speculation with land as well, acquire more land that we could build more housing on top of it and really stop um, actually the speculation with housing as well. So it's not one or the other. You can socialize and in the future yes. build more. Right? Exactly. But if we are also talking about the building thing, so if you look at actually what has been built majoritively in, in Berlin up until the, the most recent governing coalition, it's mostly been around 50 to 60 percent condos for sale. So luxury condo apartments. So um, just for reference, the majority of Berlin are renters, uh, the vast majority. So 85 percent, which is even higher than the 60% at the federal level in Germany. And Germany is already quite high because of this. It's not like this, you know, house house uh, owning culture like we have in the US and the UK. So who can afford this? It's not Berliners. I think for the most part, it is quite a lot of foreign investors that are buying up stuff. Um, people also buying them up for rent. Um, also large corporations like Deutsche Wohnen and Venovia that just buy them and then rent them out for absurd prices. So in light of all this, to some, it still might appear like a radical proposal or ex something extreme to socialize this many apartments. I mean, in many countries, this kind of interference in the market would actually be illegal. Where does the legal standing for expropriation come from? So in Germany. <laughs> 
Good that you asked. So um, expropriation within the legal framework, there are two types of expropriation that are actually defined in the German constitution. So there is expropriation when it comes to actually taking away from private individuals for things like infrastructure, for new roads, for train stations, tram lines, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's Article 14. And then there's Article 15, which is the socialization article, which says that actually through a law, the, the state and the public have every right to actually take a certain amount of a sector uh, and to make it public or to basically move it over into public hand. There's actually some interesting history here because Article 15 was a bit of a, I would say, controversial article, but actually the SPD at the time in 1949, they pushed for it because you know, there was just a world war. People were not sure whether or not capitalism was the ultimate system to help the people. So actually it's really, I wouldn't say funny or ironic, but the German constitution is actually uh, economically neutral. <laughs> <laughs> in this perspective. <laughs> so I think that was one of the really clever strategic things of the campaign to say, you know, we are doing this completely on the basis of the constitution. You know, this is something that's legally possible. It's actually never been done, but um, uh, basically all of the constitutional scholars, the legal experts say, yes, this is totally legitimate. And the framers of the constitution had this in mind when they first wrote it. Can you maybe expand on that? Like what legal experts have said? I know there's kind of a heated debate going there, on. Right there is a now. heated debate, but I think people are uh, politicizing it either without the right legal knowledge or ordering analyses, kind of, you know, paying for it. And that's what they get. So there was okay. one legal one legal opinion that was actually ordered by a, a real estate lobby organization. And they said it would, would not be constitutional. But we had, I believe, six or seven other opinions that confirmed it would be constitutional. I mean, it almost works to the campaign's advantage to not have precedent. Well, it's it's novel, yes, of course. It, it definitely catches the attention. I think uh, when it comes to that, you could you could say that yes, it's it's something bold and something radical that hasn't been dared before. And if if a city is going to do it, why not Berlin? Yes, <laughs> exactly. I'd love to talk about the election campaign or Wahlkampf in German, such a great word that literally translates to election fight or battle. Walking the streets of Berlin, I mean, it's remarkable just how visible the campaign is. The purple and yellow signage really is omnipresent. And that speaks to, I think, how the campaign has positioned itself as an unavoidable topic of debate this election cycle for the Berlin state elections. Could you walk us through which parties support and oppose the referendum? Sure. So there are, I think, five, no, it would be six, actually, parties that are, are currently in the Berlin Parliament House. Of them, the only parties that explicitly support the campaign are the left, or Die Linke, which as I mentioned before, is part PDS. So they had this merging, uh, I believe in 2008 or so, between a couple lefty parties and they're more or less kind of the shoot off from the Social Democrats on the left. Um, they support it 100%. They have also been a coalition partner. So they had their own signature collection groups out there doing stuff. Um, they're also doing door knocking and campaigning around it as well. So I think we're, we're very grateful to have that. Um, the Greens, the Green Party, um, which has had a bit of a, 
uh, upswing <laughs> in the polls, maybe back and forth. It's been a bit of a roller coaster, but they, they support it in principle. However, they see it as a last resort option. So the Greens take a different stance in saying that this is actually a means of pressure. Um, if the large real estate companies don't behave, we will withhold the right to, to use this as a legitimate means to kind of control them. The SPD is the Social Democrats. They have been in power for quite some time as like being the, the actual mayors and, and being the main coalition partner. Um, they are against us. They had a very heated debate though on their party congress about two years ago. So I believe the vote came out very close. It was something like 41 to 59%. I mean, it's not super close, but for the party that is particularly actually has a history of being very close to the real estate in, in Berlin over the past 20 years or so, I would say it's somewhat surprising. Um, they've gone a bit right wing <laughs> in the election. A bit. A bit. Um, yeah, that's a bit of an understatement. So their main, their main candidate, Giffy, she is uh, explicitly against it and she's making a campaign against it. She's also spreading some interesting claims about how much it would cost, that it's not constitutional, that they would have to check the legality, even though the uh, Parliament House already did an official check of the constitutionality and they confirmed it. Um, so she's against it. And then all the other right-wing parties are just totally against it completely. <laughs> and they're making it a topic as well. The CDU actually um, did something interesting uh, last, I think it was either this week or last week, but they, they asked the, the German Constitutional Protection Office to, to investigate Oh, the Verfassungsschutz? Yeah, the Verfassungsschutz yeah. to investigate our campaign to see if it's under control by leftist sects. <laughs> and what was the result? of that investigation it's a resounding no <laughs> so i'm officially quitting the campaign now but no <laughs> oh what a shame what a shame, what a shame. um just kidding uh, and uh yeah the afd is taking some weird statements i don't know they're taking some weird stances it's always about immigration so they're like you know apartments for for germans etc fdp wants to privatize actually all of the public housing so there's no Oh, all of it. There's Let's no just, yes. Okay. But, I mean, I think what you were also getting at is it's also interesting because the SPD has taken this right-wing turn. So um, there are there is a chance that there would be a more right-wing coalition uh, in power. So that would also negatively affect the campaign as well. Definitely. More on that a bit later. I do want to come back to our favorite Francisca Giffy. Giffy? I don't know. I always say that wrong this mayoral candidate for the SPD, the Social Democrats. I took a look at some of her other proposals. Tagesspiegel did a recent uh, kind of rundown of this. And, you know, she wants some sort of round table for developers and a Mita Beratung Plus, which is just like advice for renters plus, which all of that already exists in this city. Like you said, 85% of people are renting. And then what I think is so funny, she suggested a schneller bauen gesetz, a faster development, housing development law. She always leans into these really nice sounding names and, and that's it. She has like a list of like nine of these proposals, but what the people want is expropriation. <laughs> um, it's I true. It's, it's resounding. <laughs> the polls are on our How many signatures were collected? So um, just as some background, for the listeners uh, in Berlin, you have to have two rounds of signature collection. In the first round, you need 20,000, and in the second round, you need 7% of the electorate. In the first round, we got almost 80,000, and then in the second round, we had 350,000 signatures. But the parties opposing the re-socialization of former 
public social housing. What are their counter proposals to deal with the housing crisis? Um, so with the SPD specifically, I know they want to really put emphasis on building new apartments, which is, yeah, correct, you have to build. <laughs> but, you know, as we as I we had discussed earlier, it is really a matter of, you know, what, what gets built. So I haven't seen really any uh, wide-reaching proposals for um, requiring more and more social housing. I know that there is a, a minimum that they're suggesting, but... Um, a lot of the, the funding for social housing comes from at the federal level, and they've been failing it quite, quite, quite a lot. Um, before actually this legislative period, I believe they had only built something like a thousand um, social housing units uh, between 2014 and 2017. So they've also failed in this perspective. When it comes to building as well, there's less and less space in the inner city as well. So this also does not actually address the issue of expiring social housing units. So as I mentioned earlier, um, social housing in Germany can also be private. So instead of having it being rent controlled for forever, like is the cases in Vienna and, and also in the Netherlands, I believe, um, it expires after 30 to 40 years depending upon the um, funding for it. So every year Berlin is losing, I think, around 10,000 social housing units, something like this. So this means that these units will always be gone. There's no way to actually replace them. So what's happening now is, of course, you're seeing this kind of classic kind of like banalization of the city uh, where um, really there's no good housing options left in inside the, the city or in the more kind of central areas. And people are being forced further and further out of the city as well. So for me, I think that this is really kind of a future of segregation and a really kind of split city. The FDP wants to liberalize markets. So if private developers are allowed to run wild, the resulting supply growth, it won't automatically relieve pressure on prices because like you said, they're just going to build expensive apartments. Is that the case? Do I understand? Correct. That? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, I think also beyond this as well, when it comes to um, letting developers run wild as well, what we've actually seen, you know, before the city decided to build and the city has built um, the majority of the units actually through public housing over the past, uh, since 2017, is that these large corporations actually don't build. <laughs> mm -hmm. So uh, Deutsche Wohnen, since they've actually become Deutsche Wohnen. They have not, never had a single like notable large project it's, that has been completed. There are, there is a, I believe there's a project in Marienfelde that is about to build, complete a thousand apartments or so, but they announced in 2016 that they were gonna start investing millions of euros into building housing. My question is, why did it take five years? What are they doing? So this, this kind of myth about like, you know, the private market is much more efficient is simply not true when it comes to housing. So it's much more lucrative to simply speculate with existing housing. I think it's something between one and 3% that they put into Deutsche Wohnen, I mean, that they put back into building yeah. new apartments. That's they recently ripped down some apartments too to expand oh, the size of their headquarters. <laughs> so that that you shows their priorities. <laughs> you really can't. Make They're really good at PR. Deutsche Wohnen really makes it easy for us. So yeah. <laughs> okay. Wow. <laughs> what happens if on September 26th the majority of Berliners vote yes and the referendum passes? What's the next step? So the official thing would be that we have passed the referendum. Um, our referendum is a resolution referendum. Um, it would be similar to saying that 
the majority of the Parliament House passed a, revolution, a resolution saying that we are going to pass a law. So the text of the resolution says that the Parliament House is given the task to write this law. So um, when you do socialization, it has to be a law. In the law, it defines the, the terms, the, the scope, and also the compensation of, of the uh, expropriation. So what we've done essentially has said, okay, this gives the Senate the task uh, and also the Parliament House to write this law and to pass it and to bring it into effect, essentially. So from our perspective, it is politically binding. Juristically, it is not binding, but we are arguing that this is actually a, a completely valid method of saying that the politic, the body politic should actually take this and do this for us because it's the democratic will of the citizenship. Um, why we decided to do a resolu resolution um, referendum versus a law referendum. So in Berlin, you can do both. In a law referendum, it would become law immediately. We simply didn't have the resources to say we wanted to write a law uh, and deal with the legal challenges. So it's also not our job <laughs> as a citizen's initiative to also provide the resources for that. This is what the body politic is supposed to do. So we really see that that would be a real dereliction of duty if they were to not respect the result of the, the referendum as well. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, the, the chance that this would be implemented uh, is really contingent on the, the result of the election as well. So, How long is this process of presenting the legislation draft and having the debate expected to take? Well, it could be really quick or it could be very, very slow and drawn out. Um, so I, I like to use this example, but, you know, Berlin had this rent cap, which was seen as very, very radical. It made a lot of headlines around the world. Of course, there was tons of like red, red baiting and red scare uh, in Bloomberg and Wall Street Journal saying that, oh, Berlin's housing market is a total disaster, even though the rent cap did a lot to stop rent increases. Actually, it was the only... Uh, Berlin was the only city to actually see a decrease in rent during Corona, I think 11%, which was quite impressive. The rent cap actually came into effect, uh, I believe, in around four months <laughs> after our campaign started. So they had there had been talks, I believe, uh, at the beginning of 2018, some suggestions even before then, but nothing had really happened. In Berlin at the federal level, they have this thing called the rent break since 2015, um, which is really resoundingly been declared as a failure because there's just so many loopholes and it doesn't stop actually rent rising. It says you can raise rent 15% over three years. So Berlin's attempt to do this was quite radical, but like from the beginning of our campaign to the passing of the rent cap it was super, super quick. So for me, when the politics or the political scene wants to, it can happen. Um, I think it will definitely be, uh, there will be some, I think some triangulation or at least some attempts to take the wind out of the sail. From the SPD. I think we're, we're hoping for a continuation of Red Red Green, which is the current coalition, um, which would be the, the SPD, the Greens, and Die Linke, or the left. Because uh, within there, at least, there is possibly some form of the referendum that, that has a good chance of happening. Okay. And I read through kind of the draft legislation a little bit, and I would like to know the difference between an Anstalt öffentlichen Rechts and a Landeseigene Baugesellschaft, so like a, a public institution and a, how would you translate? Cool. <laughs> Landeseigene Gesellschaft uh, <laughs> would be city-owned company. Right. So the campaign does not want to create a city-owned company. There are a couple of them 
how would an Anstalt öffentlichen Rechts be more democratic? Um, so an Anstalt öffentlichen Rechts is is very similar to what you have kind of in the UK with the BBC. It's an institute of public law, essentially. The BVG, the, B, the BVG, which is Berlin's um, basically their metro uh, and public transportation institute company, whatever you want to call it, is also an uh, institute of public law. It actually is much easier because it's under the purview of the Senate, so they have much more control over the policy of the company as well. Um, so it's not an independent company that can set its own kind of goals and not run by an executive board, for example. So all of the Landeseigen or the city-owned public housing companies, they are independent, they have their own business goals. So sometimes they are run, they can be run quite capitalistically, which is also why there have has been um, actually a couple politicians and scholars that have come out with suggestions to actually turn the the public housing companies into institutes of public law. Um, and then that way it's much easier to actually have more democratic checks within the, the companies as well, because you can you can change things in the in the structure and in the basically in the statutes of the of the company. Yeah. And the people running those companies are making way too much money. Way too salary. much money. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Our last episode was all about German fiscal policy and the extreme debt aversion exemplified by the Schwarze Null. In that vein, I want to talk a bit about financing the buyback of these apartments. How exactly would that process work? How does the money get offset to be budget neutral? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's there's quite a lot of interesting, I think, approaches to this, um, or at least ways that we could go about this. But we, we have suggested that we would actually create debt papers or debt that we would actually give to the companies as compensation. So these debt papers would ensure a specific amount of money every year for around 40 years until it's paid off, basically. So um, there were certain benefits here in terms of having debt paper versus just taking out a loan from a bank. With, with debt, we wouldn't actually have to have a down payment for the uh, Institute of Public Law, which would mean it would actually not require probably some money from the Berlin budget, or at least a Eigenkapital. I don't know what that is. Starter capital. Starter capital, yeah. Basically starter capital for the company. Um, and it would be much more sustainable because there wouldn't be interest on the, the debt as well. So it would be a set amount of money each year and this would be easily financeable through the rent as well. In terms of the actual sum, this is a, uh, I would say this is up for debate. <laughs> we, we have had, uh, we have our own uh, estimation based on uh, not only constitutional law, but interpretations of constitutional law. We are estimating around eight to 11 billion, which actually uses our, our model for fair rents and low rents as the main uh, criteria. So we're using what we, what would be essentially the poverty line for renters to afford these apartments as the revenue source for the apartments. So split over across 250,000 apartments, this would be around eight to 11 billion. Um, the city itself has also uh, presented several models. Their original, I believe their original estimation, <laughs> their original estimation was um, 
we have 28 billion um, and the market rate is 36 billion. So the 28 billion was saying um, actually they removed the increase in land value over the last five years or so and said that this is not like earned money. <laughs> so you, you shouldn't be rewarded for this. And then they lowered it down to 18 billion with when they actually took out, I believe, also increases in rent over the last five years or so. I could be wrong about that, but there are different models. Um, our, our take is on it is that this is a political decision because in the constitution it says that there has to be a consideration of the general good of the public and all of the people that are involved in as well. So also legal experts are saying that actually this sum or this amount can cannot or should not actually present a hurdle for socialization. So if you are setting too high of a compensation, you are actually inhibiting Article 15. And Article 15 is a basic right within the German constitution. So it would actually be in absurdum because you would prevent this actually from, from happening. So. Okay, I think I, I think I follow that. <laughs> so a majority yes vote on September 26th, the referendum passes. The Berlin House of Representatives is instructed to pass a socialization law. It seems like some form of sustained and intense pressure from the campaign or housing activists is going to be required moving forward to ensure the final legislation isn't watered down. And I don't know if you have some sort of inside scoop, but will the organizational structure of Deutsche Wohnung Co. and Eignen remain intact after the election win or lose? I think... Yes, <laughs> for one, of course, I believe like, you know, we've built up such a huge structure like we had uh, around 2000 people that have been out collecting signatures and also knocking on doors for the election campaign. We have created connections within the city. We've also helped to build up new initiatives for neighborhoods and buildings that have been bought up by investors. We were also active when Heimstatten bought up around 4000 apartments. We helped to set up the organization there that was uh, trying to fight against them to get the city to buy their apartments before Heimstatten was able to. Eventually, they actually came to an agreement with the city that they wouldn't increase rent beyond a certain point and that they wouldn't convert the buildings into condos for sale, uh, and I believe in the next 20 years or so. So that was a win as well. So I think, you know, we've built the connections, we have the network, um, and there are so many other issues I think that we can continue to push on. But I think in the near term, our main focus will be on building pressure and, and ensuring that the next coalition respects the decision. Um, and if it's the majority that says, yes, that this should be law, then they need to respect that. <laughs> Definitely. The campaign has been just kind of extraordinarily professional from the nifty app for collecting signatures to this kind of top-notch graphic design, the purple and the yellow. And all the campaign literature was made available in multiple languages as well. I'm wondering if you could explain for our listeners how the campaign is structured. By that, I mean the Keats teams and the democratic structure more generally. How do you make decisions? <laughs> <laughs> and very, very long plenums, no? <laughs> yeah, actually. But um, we... So I think that's probably one of the strengths of the campaign, that we have this grassroots, uh, bottom-up um, perspective as well. So um, I'm also like fairly blown away at how much it's grown, because I can remember three years ago, you know, when it was just 20 of us in a room in like a community center. 
<laughs> so going from 20 of us to you know 40,000 people at a demonstration to 350,000 signatures to now within reach of a majority of the city um, over three years is astounding. From in terms of the the structure, you know we have neighborhood teams that are essentially responsible. They were essentially responsible for collecting signatures. So I think that was probably one of the benefits of you know, the format of a referendum because you have to put in the groundwork. So once we had built up these this infrastructure, it really just kind of runs on its own. So like the individual teams, they make decisions about what their priorities are. Um, and going up another level, there are working groups that uh, work in different areas. So I myself am in the, the communications, PR, social media group. We do a lot around kind of communication strategy. We manage all the social media channels. Um, we do storytelling. What's the word for that? Focus group, <laughs> focus group works, work as well. Um, there's also a Acción AG, which is like actions, but more like direct action stuff. So they are responsible for most of the demonstrations, any kind of like rallies we have, getting people to show up and make a lot of noise. Um, there's also a legal team, well, not really legal, but they, they call themselves the Fegas AG, which would be the socialization working group. They have been responsible for kind of the public policy and legal perspective. So there's there's several lawyers in there and they were actually responsible. They wrote the law, the draft law that we gave, uh, that we presented actually, that could be basically implemented. Um, and then, am I missing somebody? Yeah, there's also the, the Starthilfe, which they have been, uh, the Start Help, basically, they have been the big organizing wing. So they do kind of the Jane McElvey approach where they, they go to different neighborhoods and they set up committees and buildings and they get renters to network with each other and set up initiatives if their houses get bought or if they're being um, you know, really screwed over by their landlord, for example. Um, and they merge kind of a bit with the, the, the collection group and they've been responsible for getting all the teams together and, and working together to get the news out there and doing kind of the ground pounding as well. Um, and above that, there is like the big plenum, which is really kind of the, the main body decision-making thing. So we all come together every two weeks and discuss the main issues. Like if it's really kind of a question of like what requires consensus versus like, it's always this question about like balance between like being able to work in your group and also being able to decide the big issues together in the main plenum, so. Right, I've, I've been to one of those on Zoom. It's quite a lot, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then there's a, there's a, I wouldn't call it an executive decision, but they, it's called the coordination like circle or group. And they, they meet weekly and they, they make kind of everyday like business decisions. Uh, like, you know, they manage the finances and they make decisions about um, if there's a, a very important like press request, for example. So. And they were elected at some point yeah. at one of these. Yeah, the, the plenum elected yes. them, so okay. they have the mandate. <laughs> Perfect. We talked about the general critiques of the campaign's proposal, this whole build, build, build nonsense. And I know that you've done some canvassing, knocking on doors. I was wondering if you could tell us about that experience. Like, What are the common responses you receive or common misconceptions from everyday people not from these like coordinated opposition of political parties i mean it's a it's a huge spectrum <laughs> so i think i think uh you know in, in a day i've kind of had basically every kind of encounter from the entire spectrum it really depends on where you are in the city of course like if you're in Friedrichshain, you don't really have much of a problem everyone's heard of it i think a lot of people are, are kind of in support even though you know this area is very 
<laughs> gentrified. I think it was a bit more difficult in some of the outskirts because people just simply hadn't heard of the campaign. So we had to give a lot of explanation uh, and talk to them. But I think, you know, the more you talk to people, the more support was there. Like, I think people have a lot of issues, especially when they're actually uh, Deutsche Wohnen renters, for example. A lot of them were very supportive saying, okay, you know, Deutsche Wohnen hasn't done anything since they bought this house. You know, the place is falling apart. I have mold in my place. If this can improve for me, like, yes, I will sign or I will support this as well. I've also had people that were like, actually like, yes, they should actually raise the rent because... <laughs> <laughs> because then they can uh, then they will renovate the place and I'm like and then I was just like okay you know that ma like maintenance you pay for maintenance already right <laughs> and they were just like yeah it's fine I'll pay more anyways and yeah this was the, the kind of the I guess the the Bürgerliche Mitte approach that, or the centrist approach you would say in Germany of course the people that are like just calling us like DDR and we, we killed two million people or something like this like yeah you're not going to reach those people reach yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think something I ran into when collecting signatures was you have to make sure people know that you are not yourself Deutsche Wohnen because yes. the vest with the logo and the name can be a bit confusing if you're just reading the first two words and not any further. So, <laughs> Yeah, I think that's also, so I, I was in a few Deutsche Wohnen like, uh, apartment complexes and they were like are you with like are you here to repair like my plumbing no they didn't say that these but. vests look like <laughs> these vests look like construction vests construction right so vests. that might be a guy who's gonna yeah. come fix the light and <laughs> but i think well i think also one thing that i also found interesting was that people some people were afraid to put their name down because they thought it could get back to their landlord so it's like it also um at least from a normative perspective like it's kind of bad to have a company that has 110,000 apartments. And when people want to stand up and know their rights, like they're scared because they're going to be kicked out of their apartments. So I think this also really underlines the stakes of the, the campaign and the whole situation. Definitely. And in my neighborhood, and from what I've heard also across Berlin, certain housing, speaking of misconceptions now, certain housing cooperatives have been spreading misinformation about the campaign's intention to go after cooperative housing i don't know whether to call them projects or entities what is the i just know them as genossenschaften in I just, german yeah i call them <laughs> I, I call them co-ops in, in, german, okay, co in english normally yeah um i saw the meme tweeted out of bart simpson writing on the chalkboard unsere kampagne will keine genossenschaften and eigenen ad nauseum what's the truth so this is um, our official stance has, and has always been that we don't want to expropriate co-ops because co-ops are not typical uh, capital, capitally heavy or capital focused companies. So co-ops are a form of what we would call like cooperative economy. Um, in German, you would call it Gemeinwirtschaft. Literally, that would mean like the together economy, <laughs> basically. Um, and Genossenschafts have historically been considered a part of the co-op, the cooperative economy or the Gemeinwirtschaft. We see them as actually what they should be natural allies because what they do is they um, have their members' interests at heart first. There is a law that actually says that 
the explicit intent or purpose of, of co-ops is to actually take care of the interests of their members. And in this case, it's for housing. So most Genossenschafts are also uh, democratically set up. So uh, renters have to agree to certain big projects, uh, rent raises, et cetera, et cetera. You can also vote over big issues if you have a share in the, in the co-op. I'm a member of a co-op just as like Absicherung or like as insurance if I ever have to move. And that structure in itself actually is something that we believe adds to the city and helps with the city. We can talk about individual co-ops because there are co-ops that kind of abuse this and there are co-ops that are run more like for-profit entities when they shouldn't be. And this is also one of these things where I think um, some of the co-ops out, out there, there's a big disconnect between the membership and like executive committees and people that are running them as well. So they're not being run democratically, unfortunately, but that doesn't mean we want to expropriate them. I think um, if anything, we want to actually make it more sustainable. So like through our campaign, of course, we would be able to stop speculation more speculation with building land, for example, it would be much easier for the city to buy land and, and give it to Genossenschaften or co-ops for development as well. And there's also the argument that that Article 15, um, is like basically bringing economic actors or means of production or land into common ownership. But if you can't actually expropriate somebody with Article 15 if it's already in like common ownership. So co-ops are owned by their members. It is already cooperatively owned. So actually this, it would actually not apply in this case. And then the co-ops are arguing like the exact opposite. <laughs> some of these, these specific co-ops. So there are, there are still some very good co-ops. We also set up a side campaign um, of co-op members to speak out against this and they did a couple reports and um, I believe there was also a report that came out from the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung, the Rosa Luxemburg Fund, which you can read uh, as well, um, which talks about the history of co-ops and like how they have always been kind of considered a um, natural ally or a one of the pillars of this 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 co-op economy. Yeah. And they will not be affected. And they will not be affected. Yes, that's the main point. All right. Lastly, I guess, how can people get involved with the campaign in the last, what are we at, like 17, 18 days? The countdown is running. Um, Or at least receive updates, perhaps. How can they connect with the campaign? Yeah, I think it might be too late (laughs) to to get involved in the campaign. But um, you could... I don't know, you could still go like canvassing and stuff. I think there's still definitely time for that. Um, What you can do is like uh, basically subscribe to all of our social media channels. We post regular Keats teams or neighborhood team meetings. So if there's one in in your neighborhood or your Keats, you can just go like say, I want to help, even if you've never done it before. Um, Generally, when it comes to like canvassing, I know every time that we did it, there would be a bit of an intro, like, okay, how does it work? What should you be saying? Like, so they will help you out. If you can't make a meeting, I would say just subscribe to all of our social media, follow us. I think you can also sign up for the newsletter as well. You can also donate. (laughs) Remind your friends to vote at this point, I guess. Yeah, Yeah. just, yeah, remind all your friends and family to vote yes on the 26th of September and we can win a affordable city for everyone. (laughs) I hope so. Um, Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. Do you want to plug your Twitter where you get (laughs) mad at Uh, Yeah, you can follow me at (laughs) T.A. McGath on Twitter. I am a very pleasant-looking Shiba Inu (laughs) on Twitter. Yeah, for good takes, bad, bad, broken German, and housing updates. That's what we love. (laughs) Thank you so much. That was fun. Thank you.
Yeah, thanks so much to Thomas and Michelle. Thanks for interviewing him. That was super interesting to hear about. You know, like we said, really exciting campaign, really interesting to hear about both the specifics of that initiative and the campaign and what it means for this broader political moment of rental politics in Berlin. That's what we have for our episode today. Thanks so much for tuning in. We also want to remind you that we have a live event with our friends from the Corner Spati podcast, which you should listen to if you don't already, but you probably do. That is the 26th at 5.30 p.m. at Donau 115, a bar in Neukölln. Uh, if you're not in Berlin, you can tune in to a live stream. We'll share the link for that. Um, so yeah, come come hang out, uh, drink some beers, talk about the German election because that will well actually we'll get results for this referendum then, won't we? We will at like eight thirty, I think. But, okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it's a it's a huge evening because yeah, we got the referendum results, we've got Berlin state results, we've got obviously the federal results. Super, yeah, they go valid, they uh, go kind yeah. of like big to small. They do the federal election counting first and the referendum is the last thing to be counted but they estimate that it'll be out at 8 30 i'm nervous but excited i don't know it was so it was so fun talking to thomas thank you so much thomas again yeah so yeah. come come call you calm your nerves with us drink a couple beers hang out it should be a good time what do we have coming up next we are talking election aren't we oh yeah we have right <laughs> yeah we are we are getting down from these sort of these these basis things and and this uh these kind of foundational episodes and the specific one about a particular campaign we want to give you a broad overview of the election in general the whole german political landscape what are the parties saying what are, where do they come from how are they polling what kind of coalitions can happen any other goofs and spoofs that we've seen in this election. And we're going to invite some friends on to talk about that with us. So uh, be excited for that. And that will be our next one. And yeah, thanks again to Thomas. We will, yeah, we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Cheers. Spaßbremse is hosted by Ted and Michelle and produced by Isaac Werman. This week with special help from Tom Wills. Check out the show notes for things referenced in this episode, including Victor's memoir and his Berlin Bulletin on theleftberlin.com. You can listen to more episodes of Spaßbremse on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, most other podcast platforms, or wherever you are listening right now. Subscribe to be notified each week when our new episode drops. And if you like what you're hearing on the show, feel free to give us a rating, leave a review, or share with other people who you think could use a little Spaßbremse in their life. You can also find updates about Spaßbremse on Twitter, at Spaßbremse, that's S-P-A-S-S-B-R-E-M-S-E underscore pod. Thanks for listening. <laughs>